Talk with Ben Tompkins. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Real Talk. I am Ben Tompkins. We are presented by Nobody Currently. These are the mixtape days. These are the Atlanta days. These are the days in between. And these are the episodes right here that are going to get us where we want to be. Because today's episode with Sarah Cummins is so fire. I have been waiting to drop this one. This is truly a treat, and I cannot wait to share this episode with the world. So, welcome in, my friends, new listeners, old listeners. How you doing? Good to have you in. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoy this episode, please drop us a rating and a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Please, try to get these numbers up, so do your boy a favor, okay? If you missed last week's episode, Back and I'm Better, I highly encourage you go and check it out. We got a lot of great things going on lately. Just dropped some really big news. I just moved to Atlanta. I just started a new job. I am a chief storyteller. I am not even 30 years old yet. So we're kind of living our best life. And I'm back in the gym, one of those really cool gyms. I'm getting back in shape. I'm seeing all these, you know, it's like one of those gyms where almost all the women are wearing like the bikinis with the Lulu pants and all the dudes are just shredded. And yeah, I might be kind of at the bottom of the totem right now, but hey, I'm looking up. Things are looking up. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. But it's just funny. You know, I, I, I remember living in California and looking at these gyms as something like that was a few levels above me, but now I'm doing those things. And once I move into my apartment and I'm not in this little echoey hotel room anymore, we're really going to be living our best life. I really cannot wait for that moment. So until then, I'm trapping out the motel. I'm taping these intros and outros out of here, out of this little pop-up studio that I've got going on. And I've got really great content for you, like today's guest, Sarah Cummins. Now let me tell you a little something about Sarah Cummins. Sarah Cummins is a hustler, a mother, a business owner, a solo traveler, an artist, and just a badass human being. Give this woman a Louisville legend banner already. I mean, seriously, what are we even doing? We need a Sarah's Louisville banner. It needs to happen. It's outrageous that it hasn't happened at this point. So I'm officially starting that petition. You can definitely sign up. I have known Sarah for most of my life as she has been my dentist and my friend through thick and thin, man. I'm telling you, we go way back. This is the woman that fixed me after I broke myself post-Derby 17. I've told that story, and there is nothing I can say about her other than it's all love. Sarah joins the show to share her strengths, her insights, and her expertise on how to build a business and what she believes are the core keys any entrepreneur should have. We start with where she grew up and how she grew up and how her parents' divorce when she was very young shaped her adolescence and how she strived to do things differently through her own divorce. She takes us through her time in college, starting out as an artist and eventually moving back home to make a shift into dentistry. She shares how the two things are synonymous for her. You wouldn't think that dentistry and artistry go hand in hand, but you will after this episode. And then we get into the meaty parts of how she built her business, starting from scratch, the system building that had to happen, the processes and the culture that she built, and eventually opening a different location, an additional location. We talk about what it's like being a mom and running a full-time business and how she balances all of those things. And later, we go super deep when talking about rock bottoms, why she loves being in solitude and solo traveling, women in business, voluntary discomfort, and finally, she gives her realist talk. 
I am so, so grateful that she trusted me to share her story. Editing this episode, I felt like I was touching something so delicate, so fragile, because it's just, it's that special to me, and this is such a powerful episode. I'm going to get emotional talking about it, because that's just, man, I, 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 it's all love. That's the only thing I can say. I mean, it's just like... Ah, I love this woman, man. I, I absolutely admire and respect her, and this is just such a treat to have her on the show. So thank you, Sarah, for all that you do for the Louisville community. Thank you for all that you've done for me, and I hope everybody loves this episode half as much as I enjoyed playing it for you because we really had a ball. I, I, I'm just having fun with it, man. At this point, when I get to do episodes like this, this is just a ride, and I am on it, and it is going pretty well. It's going pretty well. I'm kind of living my best life, you know? I've got these things dropping. I'm living in Atlanta, and uh, things are going pretty good for me. So without further ado, please, please enjoy this episode with Sarah Cummins. All right. I'm joined now in the studio by Sarah Cummins, Dr. Sarah Cummins. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. It's so great to get you in the studio. <laughs> You've been asking for a while. I finally... Uh, you had to threaten to move to get me in here, so pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I feel like it's perfect timing because I am on my way out, but I can't really tell my story without involving you, and it's really hard to put into words like everything that you mean to me, and just like I feel like we went through that trauma of me knocking out my front teeth together, and we've been together for so long. You know, I've been trusting you with dental services and, and dental perfection for over 10 years. So we've grown together. I've watched you grow the business from one location to another. And it's been really, really cool to see and, and a really positive influence. So thank you so much for all that you mean to me. Oh, gosh, that's so humbling. Thank you, Ben. And if I, I mean, I might get a little emotional in this because Perfect. It, um, anyway, it's a privilege. And so the way that you've watched me grow, I've done the same with you. I think you were in high school when you started coming to the practice and to sort of watch you get through school and go through your career. It's a really unique relationship to be able to see somebody every six months, for example, you know, as they are growing and changing and to be interested with your care is such a privilege. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And now you, you you brought me another book. I'm halfway through the first book that you gave to me. And then you brought another book when you came to the studio with a nice handwritten note. I'm like, why is she trying to make me cry right off the rip? Oh, no. What is this? You know, that book for me is sort of my Bible. It's my spiritual reference, you know. And I mean, I have some of that tattooed on my arm because there are some really some concepts in that book that are are really important to me and really have sort of been a framework for for living for me. So if you can get anything out of it that does the same for you, then it'll make me happy. But yeah, I'm happy to share that book with anybody. I think it's just got some real simple, great concepts. And the book is what? Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. It's Deepak Chopra. He does a lot of documentaries. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, he comes on uh, Colin Cowherd's show a lot. And he's done a lot of work with Tom Brady. He did the Tom versus Time documentary. Oh, That's really? Yeah. I, did, I didn't even know that. Yeah, really cool. Yeah. So thank um, you. Yes, of course. So let's jump to the beginning and okay. start with where you grew up and how you grew up. So I was born in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Have you heard of that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Very small town. 
And I lived there until I was about 13. My parents divorced when I was about 10, and my dad moved to Florida, and I hung out in Hopkinsville for a couple more years, but then just wanted the opportunity to try something different, so I moved to Florida to live with him. That was Daytona Beach, so I usually say I grew up in Daytona Beach because that's the part of my childhood that I remember the most, you know. Went to Florida State and then transferred to Louisville. That's kind of what brought me back up here. Are you an only child? Oh, that's an interesting question. I have three half-siblings, okay, and I don't really have a relationship with any of them. So, sort of, (laughs) (laughs) would be my answer to that, you know. Biologically, no, I'm not an only child. I do share DNA with some people, but I don't have a close sibling. You know, I say I'm a tumbleweed because (laughs) really I've simplified my childhood for you because otherwise it would be, there was a lot of kind of... uh, disjointed family experiences so but yes I'm the only child of my two parents yes let's go there because that's yeah. that we, we oh, love gosh. trauma oh, you, you know we, the Benny T and the T stands for trauma that's what people tell me oh so. gosh yeah. okay so you grew up an only child until about 13 or in whose side well of- so I'm the youngest of four girls okay so my closest sibling a half sibling is six years older than I am okay and then I have some that are 12 15 years older than I am. My dad was 12 years older than my mom. So, and he had had a, you know, another family before he met my mom. Gotcha. You know, I was 13 when my parents divorced too. Oh yeah. And it's funny. I I almost remember things in terms of like pre-divorce and post-divorce in terms of childhood memories. Yeah, me too. It's, and you know, I'm divorced. So I reference my own experience frequently Mm -hmm. when I'm thinking about my children's experience you know yeah. so <laughs> was it a messy divorce with with your parents or was it pretty amicable with my parents you know it wasn't like I watched them fight for years and years or anything like that it was you know I remember a few months of some conflict and some arguments but you know it came pretty suddenly it seemed and it was over fairly suddenly and I don't remember a lot of back and forth arguing between them following the divorce or anything like that. I mean, and maybe because he moved and I think I think my mother had some resentment, you know, over that because she basically raised us by herself, you know. But uh yeah, I mean it wasn't I don't feel like it was terribly traumatic for me. You know, I think kids they don't know any different, you know, they just kind of go with the flow yeah. as long as that their day-to-day routine isn't severely affected and you know, when I think about the challenges that I faced in my childhood, I, I, I'm thankful for those. You know, I think that it, it created some some real strong survival skills in me and adaptability and flexibility. And so I don't resent anything for sure. I've talked to a lot of people that have either gone through divorces or traumas or grew up single parent household. And a lot of them, there's like a, a reoccurring theme that they've had to go and seek out the things that they wish that they had. Do you think that that's something that you've done in your life and your career mm-hmm. is just filling in those gaps? Yes. I think I've tried to create the home that I wanted when I was a child. You know, mm-hmm. I think I've tried to create that for my children. I've tried to create financial stability in my life. You know, that was something that always seemed to be a struggle. I've tried to, you know, again, 
raised in this small town, and and even after moving to Daytona, it's a pretty small town, and you know we didn't travel extensively, so that's something that that's what I love to do, and that's what I've tried to give to my kids. You know, yeah. I want them to have an appreciation for their ability to experience other parts of the globe. So does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it was very funny too. We we both share the passion for traveling and actually when we were had no idea that we were gonna be there at the same time, but we were both at under canvas out yeah. of the Grand Canyon. That's and right. What a what a place to stay. No kidding. Yeah. That was a great experience. Yeah. I was so worried <laughs> that your mother and I were texting back and forth before I got there and she was, you know, warning me about, okay, now to use the shower you have to do this and there's no electricity and there's no heat and there's you know <laughs> But it ended up being a really great experience. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you're 13 years old. You go to Daytona. Mm -hmm. You go to high school in Florida as well? Middle school and high school, and then my first year of college. Yeah. Okay. Where did Mm -hmm. you go to college? I started at Florida State. I actually had a full scholarship to Florida State for academics, but I was an art major, Bachelor of Fine Arts in Painting. And when I got there... And started going through the coursework and getting to know some of the people in that field, it no longer felt right for me. And it just, I needed something with more structure, maybe. Mm. And I started to worry about how I was going to make a living. And maybe that was that fear of being financially unstable mm. that sort of pushed me a different direction. So, And did you leave Florida State? I did. I transferred to Louisville. Okay. Actually, my freshman year, I started dating this bass player in a band. (laughs) So we did a lot of uh, traveling and, you know, lots of late nights. And so I I wasn't totally bombing Florida State, (laughs) (laughs) but I lost my scholarship. I think I was like two-tenths of a point off. And so, so my mother, who was still up here, said, why don't you move up here to Louisville and try that school and live at home for a while and kind of get back on track. And so that's what I did. And I'm glad I did. It it was the best thing for me. So I've been down to Florida state. My girlfriend went to Florida state actually. Oh, Really? Yeah. Yeah, Maddie was a Florida state girl. So we went and did, um, Oh man, I'm forgetting the names of the, the key places to go if you're a student, but who knows now, but there's like a pineapple smash drink maybe at this place. I'll, Florida State people are going to be so mad that I'm forgetting this. This is terrible. Was that hard to go from maybe this is the first time you're out on your own and you get down to Florida State and then having to move back home? That's a tough transition. Yeah, it was, but it felt it felt right. It felt like like maybe I was going to have a little bit more time to figure things out. Mm-hmm. And my my relationship, even though I lived with my dad down there, it was very estranged. And once I left for school, really a lot of the communication between us sort of ended. And I sort of felt like um, a leash had sort of been cut, you know, mm. or some sort of a tie had been cut. And so I think it felt good to sort of be under a, a parent's umbrella again, just for a little longer while I mapped out my next few decisions. Was that liberating to have that leash cut? No, it felt very uncomfortable. I, I wasn't sure what to do with it. I wasn't sure how to communicate or if they wanted me to communicate. Um, he was remarried at the time, so when I say they, it's him and his wife, but 
no, it was just, it was strange. I didn't understand it and I wasn't sure just how to manage it. I didn't, I didn't feel welcome at home and I, I really didn't have my own place to live, you know, other than my dorm room at Florida State. And so I think that's why when my mom stepped in and said, let's try this, it felt like somebody was leading and, and sort of I had a home to go to again. And so it's so unfair as a kid to have to be burdened with doing that stuff and, and be figuring that stuff out. And I can create a lot of anxiety. Matt and Jillian and I all went through that where we were basically blackballed from our Italian Catholic side of the family, right? That's yeah. that's just how it goes. But then all the time, like mending those relationships, either with cousins or uncles or aunts, my godfather, that was always put onto us. And that's such an unfair thing. It, it was so unfair, I think, for you to have to be trying to play those guessing games and where do I stand? How do I communicate? Like how do you're taking it upon yourself to learn how to communicate with an adult and you're a teenager, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, again, you know, I've tried to create a very different experience for my kids because it was just very unsettling. And I, I feel like it was a bit of a setback for me too, clearly, you know, and then maybe that's why I struggled at Florida State because I just really lost parental leadership and guidance. So you go through and you finish at the University of Louisville? Yes. Yes. So when I moved here, I changed my major to pre-med biology because I always really liked science, too. And um, I did very well in it in high school. And so I started thinking about just a career in the medical field. And at the time, I I mean, I've always been a big exercise person, you know, and at the time I was running a lot, starting to compete a little bit in races and really started to get into just sort of Mm, kind of the idea of PT or sports medicine, kinesiology, that kind of thing. So I started thinking about physical therapy, and I worked at Fraser Rehab Center for about three and a half years when I was doing undergrad. Really? Yeah, and that was enough. I, I just realized PT was not what I wanted to do. So then I took an MCAT and started thinking about medical school. But my uncle was a dentist. He's a retired dentist now, but... He said, why don't you come work with me for a couple of weeks and see what you think? And so one summer I did that and just hung out with him. And it's a very artistic field. I mean, yes, it's science and it's medicine, but it's very crafty. It's very hand skill driven and, you know, very, very visual, very proportion, texture, color, a lot of those things that I was dealing with in art. And so it suddenly just sort of seemed like the best of both worlds where I could still manifest some of that creative side of myself, but also enjoy the scientific aspect of it. When you started to get into dentistry, did you know immediately that this is like the perfect culmination of all the things that you loved and were good at? I did. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as I started working on patients and started doing, yeah, started carving out teeth, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's the first class that you take in dental school. You have to do, uh, it's, it's called waxing, but you basically have to create teeth out of wax. And that's what you do all day. You just sit there. And I mean, the minutia, the detail, you know? <laughs> it's insane. So you have to be somebody that like thrives on that, that really likes attention to detail, you know? Yeah. Dentists are pretty kind of anal retentive people, like we're, you know, very organized, detail-oriented, you know. Yeah, you like most of us, way. most of yeah. us, yeah. yeah, yeah, so. When you look at uh, 
the shapes of teeth? Is this something that you like to draw as well? I mean, as you're kind of like maybe moonlighting as an artist during this time too, are you still drawing and are you still exercising those creative abilities? Right now. Or just when you were starting. I I wasn't then, but I have since. I draw a lot of pictures at the office and I mean, it's kind of a joke because, you know, they'll have me sign them or they're all over the office. Little pictures of how I, I try to illustrate things to patients, you know. Or sometimes, you know, if we've got extra filling material laying around, I'll shape it and light cure it so it's hard and I'll make like a necklace, you know. <laughs> of teeth? Yes. So now what we've started doing, this is so great. We have a 3D printer that we use for various things, but... You know, you can download software to print just about anything. (laughs) So one day I came in and the girls had printed like this tiny little woman who looks like she's got her doctor's coat on. and She's sitting down with her legs crossed and they like take her, you know, room to room. It's I know it sounds very (laughs) strange, but we have a pretty good time with that. But so, yeah, I mean, there's definitely opportunities for me to draw and, and carve and all that. So and I've kind of messed around with it at home, too. There is such an organic quality to the shape of teeth, to the color, the texture, especially like an extracted tooth. I mean, this sounds, sounds so gross, but or a tooth that's had a root canal. And so I have actually kind of blown up that image so large that you can't tell what it is, but in a 2D drawing. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And done a little bit of painting and and I mean, not not for anybody else to necessarily enjoy. Sure. <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't recognize it as a tooth, you know, when you saw it. But but yeah, I don't know. I love the shape of teeth. I love teeth. <laughs> <laughs> what was it about teeth that made you realize this? At at what point did you yeah. kind of put those two things together and go, wait a second, this is what I want to do? Well, I don't think it was before dental school. You know, I think I that I just. That was a wing and a prayer that, you know, I thought, well, let's give this a try. <laughs> Since the art thing didn't work out, this is my plan B. But certainly that first class, the waxing class that I was talking about, I really loved that and felt like I'm pretty good at this, you know. But I think once I started to have to literally carve teeth, which you, you have to do just to to make a, a temporary crown or something like that, or even just to make a filling, you know, I mean, you have to understand the anatomy and know how to carve it and how to shape it and to make it look organic and lifelike and pretty. And, and so I started to really revel in that process. And I still do. I mean, it is not uncommon for me to go in on a Sunday afternoon and spend two or three hours just grinding, (laughs) you know, (laughs) for a purpose, not just for fun, but, you know, just to like prepare something for the next week or or whatever. So yeah, literally cutting your teeth. That's how they start in the business, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. My uncle who graduated from dental school in like 1974 or 78, something like that. We used hot wax to build teeth. They had to carve a bar of soap into a tooth. Oh, my god! Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Sounds like a terrible science project. I know. I know. It sounds so just kind of uh, archaic. But anyway. So take me through when you're starting in the business and you're working for other people's practices at that point and then eventually launching your own and starting your own business. Yeah. Yeah. What are those middle years, if you will, what do those look like? 
You know, I didn't have those years because I started that practice as soon as I graduated, which is very rare. Wow. That's called a scratch practice. And usually, I mean, I think maybe two or three people in my whole class did something like that. But it's very unusual. And How come? Well, it's just because to go from having the mentorship to practicing independently all of a sudden is very intimidating. Whereas, you know, if you associate or go work for another dentist for a while, you go from that, you know, academic world where you've got 10 people looking at you and watching you and making sure that everything's okay. At least you go to at least one more person who's got the experience watching everything and somebody to ask questions. And, and I never really wanted to do that. I just kind of had this clear vision of what, what I wanted. And I felt confident that I had good clinical judgment and that my hand skills were good. I felt like, well, if I don't know something, I'll ask somebody, I'll find somebody to ask. But I looked at some practices to buy and they just all needed so much change to get to where I wanted it to be that I thought I might as well just do this on my own. And so that's what I did. I literally, I leased property before I was even out of school. Oh my gosh. I know. It's crazy. Which it, it really is because you think about the transition that you went from going from Florida State and kind of, like you said, using your own words, kind of needing that person above you to kind of shepherd you and show you the way a little bit. But then here you are leasing property before you even finished school. Like, I'm going to go do it myself. I got this. Yeah. That's almost contradictory, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that, that was a lot of growing between that Florida State experience and you know, almost finishing dental school, Yeah, a lot of maturing and a lot of, I mean, I definitely feel I'm so thankful for that education. It's to suddenly realize that you have a skill that's in demand and that very few people have. It's very empowering. Yeah. So I don't know. I just, I felt instinctively that that was the right thing for me to do. And like I said, I felt confident, and so I did it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You know, in hindsight, was it the right thing? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I could have done 10 different things, and I'd probably find good and bad in all of them, you know. But it was brutal in the beginning. It was very difficult, you know. I'm sure it probably had an impact on my family life, you know, and why I'm single today. But, you know, a lot of hours and... A lot of financial stress, which is why a lot of people don't do it. Mm. You have to get fast in order to be profitable, you know. And when you first come out of dental school, you're really, really slow. Mm. So you have to be able to produce. And I don't mean to say that in a way that is selling some product that people don't need or don't, you know. But, you know, you just have to be able to schedule appropriately so that you can pay people and pay the rent and and mix the procedures in a way that just makes it make financial sense. So I didn't know any of that going into it. Whereas if I had worked for someone else for a few years, I probably would have had a better idea of how to operate the practice and manage it and all that. So it wasn't that we were doing things wrong. It's just that it was a brand new business just starting out and trying to build it from the ground up. Those first few years were very difficult. Yeah. Just taking time. Yeah. And especially for a perfectionist like yourself. Yeah. I'm sure that there was a lot a lot that went into those days. A lot, a lot of system building. You know, now I've done it so long and it, and I've worked on it for so long that it, it almost runs itself to a certain extent. You know, we have systems in place and I've got very well-trained people that have been there for years. And so I 
I show up and, you know, it, it's open and everything's running. And we have, we have this joke at the office that I just work here. I don't know how to turn anything on. I don't know. <laughs> if somebody needs an x-ray on a Saturday, I have to call somebody and ask them, you know, how to turn on this computer and get this thing going. I mean, it's funny, but it, it's true because the level of dentistry that we do now there's no way I could do it all by myself. I have to be able to focus on the things that only I can do so that I can be good at it. And I have to let the other stuff go. Yeah. You know, when I started, I had one other person working with me who ran back and forth from the front desk oh back God. to assist me. So I did all of the sterilization. You know, I did all of the I managed all of the instruments and cleaning them and breaking the rooms down and setting the rooms up. I did all of that. Yeah. Now, oh my gosh, there's no way I could do that and do the dentistry that I do. There are too many patients and there's too much work and it's too intellectually demanding. You know, it requires that I'm studying a lot. So I study more now probably than I used to. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, it's mm. it's it's cool to hear those stories, those kind of like mixtape day stories, yeah, right? Yeah. When you're just wearing all those hats yourself. And when you start to build these systems out, and these processes, did you go into it knowing, okay, I'm in this for the long haul, I'm going to build these things so that it's sustainable long term? Or were you just going so fast and doing so many things that you started to implement those as you went along and realized, oh, wait, this would save time or this would make more sense? Like, were you thinking about this in terms of, I'm going to do this and this is going to be a success? Well, I mean, I was determined to have success for sure, but I think the systems developed as they needed to be developed. You know, when we would run into a problem, an issue, a new system would be developed, and the systems are constantly evolving, always evolving, you know. So a lot of the things that I used to do, we still do, but in a different way, or maybe with more efficiency or more intricacy, but we are always still developing systems. If something goes wrong, we have a meeting every single morning and we go through the entire schedule and we talk about every single patient that we're going to see, mm-hmm. what we're supposed to be doing, what we did last time, how they feel about the music we play, you know, if they <laughs> like their chair, you know, not fully reclined, you know, things like that. When to cut them off with the gas. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But when something pops up if the day doesn't flow the way we wanted it to and something what we would consider to be bad happens we're hashing it out in that morning meeting to figure out how we can avoid that happening again and so it's usually creating some sort of a system Hmm. to prevent something like that again so but you know dentistry is hard and it's it's um you know as much as we try to do a great job all the time we're dealing with a lot of variables and the biggest one being the human being in the chair. Mm. So we're trying, um, but you know, there are always challenges and nobody likes to go to the dentist, which makes it even harder, you know? Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That can be, that can be tough. But I think what you've created is this space where people feel welcome. I feel welcome there. It's, still I'm having teeth drilled on and you know that yeah. that kind of thing but that's the business too you know but the environment that I walk into I know that I'm getting top-notch care top-notch attention and that you guys really do genuinely care well that makes me feel really good 
You know, I think that it is truly a reflection of the energy in the team there and our just philosophy of care. You know, I think it's hard to compartmentalize your life. Like if my reception area is messy and dated and dirty, then it's a reflection of my overall standard of excellence. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So I don't think you can be super attentive to detail and very prepared and very organized clinically and not have that going on in the rest of your office. So for me, it all has to make sense. It all has to be congruent, consistent, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's important to me that our facility reflects my standard of excellence. I was speaking with another business leader. Her name's Jamie Ledden. She was a professor at UK. Now she's at Vanderbilt. And we actually taped earlier today. So this is like really fresh on the mind. But she is an executive coach. And she was telling me, we were talking about uh, organizational cultures. And she said that organizational cultures reflect what the majority of the people do the majority of the time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, that's some high that's level stuff awesome. right there. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And you know, The office wouldn't run the way it runs and it wouldn't look the way it looks if my team did not buy into the mission. Mm -hmm. They are just as invested. They are just as dedicated. If they weren't, I would struggle. It would be a constant battle. But instead, it's very synergistic because they are just as dedicated and driven as I am for excellence and success and all that. So we really feed off of each other. Because every, um, every person you bring in is a reflection of yourself, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. We, and I mean, it's not just me that wouldn't tolerate certain things, but the team itself, there's an understanding among all of us yeah. what's appropriate, what's not. So I feel like they've almost cultivated the staff amongst themselves. Yeah, it's really cool. It's a yeah. great culture that Thank you built. Thank you. Yeah. Was the location when you opened up your scratch practice right yeah was that the location that was your old location yeah yeah I was there for 15 years Wow. and we've been in this one for over three years now so yeah Uh, it's much bigger space oh yeah it is so I don't know if you're you might remember this but in 2015 somebody approached me about buying their practice because they needed to retire And it was never on my radar. I just never, I mean, I had enough on my plate as it was, but it sounded cool. (laughs) So (laughs) I thought, why not? You know, I was kind of up for a new professional challenge at the time. And so we bought a second practice and I was kind of going back and forth between the two, trying to build the other one, had three associate dentists had to hire people to work at both offices to for when I wasn't there. And, and I did that for about three and a half years. And that was a real learning experience for me because it helped me very quickly and clearly define why I do what I do and how I want to do what I do. Mm-hmm. So the reason that we built the new big one is because we merged those two practices. Mm-hmm. And I just, I had, I needed more space. We had outgrown the other space anyway, so... And the old, the, the new one that I had purchased, I mean, it wasn't a new practice, but the practice that I purchased in 2015, it needed massive renovation. It needed to be, you know, so I, this is, this was just what we chose to do. Yeah. Going back and forth between two locations for me is just not, 
it was not working. So not enough time in the no, day. No, I would wake up in the morning and think, where am I supposed to be today? <laughs> Which office and what time? And, you know, it was just, it was crazy. Yeah. So, and, you know, dentistry, again, it's super unique to the individual, to the individual provider, the individual dentist. So, if you're real funny about how you want things done, it's tough sometimes to work with other people that have a different philosophy of care, mm. different philosophy of ethics, of just treatment planning. And so for me, I kept trying to create consistency among all the providers, and that was just another very big job. So I probably work harder now than I ever have because I'm doing it all by myself. I basically have two practices under one roof. Mm-hmm. But I feel better about it. And I'd rather work a lot more and work harder and feel like I've got my finger on every detail. Mm -hmm. And that's how it feels right now. So, yeah. (laughs) Stickler for the details. I am. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So. Is it hard being a mom and running a business and working as tirelessly as you do? Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. I mean, it's almost over for me. My youngest is graduating from high school now, but... My daughter just did this retreat, and I had to write her a letter that she read on retreat. And the first paragraph of the letter is, I'm just sorry I wasn't there more when you were young. I mean, the first, so I had her, have I told you this about having my daughter? So I had her about six months into this brutal scratch practice, you know, startup business. Oh, my gosh. So I had her on a Monday. I scheduled it. I scheduled an induction because I'm like, well, I have patients here and here. So could we do it on this Monday? So we scheduled it. I had her Monday morning and I was seeing patients the next Monday morning. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. So I took one week off and I took her to work with me. So for the first four months of her life, she was like, I had a little nursery set up in there and she was with me. But then... I had somebody kind of take over, and uh, she was at home. And and really, those were the toughest years of the practice, and I I was gone a lot. I feel like I've been able to kind of make up for it on the other end. And and even now, you know, she tells me, you know, I I remember that being a big deal when in our social group, for whatever reason. But as all these young women were having babies, the big question was, are you going to work? You know, and it was almost sort of this status symbol if you don't have to or Mm -hmm. and I think I kind of wrestled with that like you know I wanted to be a professional but I didn't want to be judged for not being available to my child and so I wrestled with that quite a bit and still now I'm at peace with it but I've always hoped that what they didn't get from me when they were three years old or whatever I've made up for it in some other way maybe just through modeling work ethic or, or something like that. But, and, you know, I think my kids both believe that, that, you know, I think what they've experienced and witnessed as I've built the business and worked hard and accomplished things. And I think that makes up for the times I couldn't take them to the zoo or, you know, when they were younger. And really, I think also becoming a single mother, you know, many, many years ago and trying to do this, yeah. you know, it changed my relationship with them in a way that really I probably had to get more, not that I wasn't engaged, but I, I just became super, super intentional about creating that family life that 
I was afraid that maybe I was taking away from them that maybe I didn't have when I was a kid. So yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's it's again here's this moment or the situation where you're creating for yourself or your kids what you either didn't have or what you want for them so badly. Yeah, and I think for any parent to have done what you did looking back on it first of all kids might not understand when they're young but then they get older and they realize Mm -hmm. what it is that you built and at least you made it mean something you know it'd be one thing if you were not there that much because you were in the streets or just whatever right but here you are building this business and now that it's afforded them the lifestyle that I'm sure that they've grown up with. They're they probably pretty appreciative and also are like, dude, they're marveling at you. You yeah. know what I mean? They're like, my mom's a badass. Like, well, look what, I think they're look proud. What she did. Yeah, yeah, I think they are proud of me. And and that means that means a lot. You know, I think that being surrounded by that and witnessing, I think it has um, helped them develop their own work ethic and their own gratitude and it's helped them set goals for themselves. And so I feel like overall it's been enormously positive and you're right. I mean, it has afforded us the opportunity to travel quite a bit and to just have a really good quality of life. So I feel like it was the right path. I almost quit when I found out I was pregnant with my son, I guess. So, you know, I don't, my timing is not great on some of these things. So I found out about three months into dental school that I was pregnant with my son and, you know, unplanned, although they say they're all planned. But so at that point, I had to really get clear with myself about what I wanted my life to look like. You know, I thought about maybe doing nursing school instead, just something that where I could get out and get to work sooner or, you know, maybe not have to work as much. Or, But I carried him in that little carrier to school with me all the time. And on Saturdays and Sundays, if I had work to do down there, he was right next to me. (laughs) So we made it, you know. And, you know, I've never wished for an easy life ever. I'm a take the stairs kind of person. I like to I like voluntary discomfort Mm. and I like to challenge myself and and really push myself out of my comfort zone a little bit. And I was willing to jump off a cliff a few times, you know, and opening that practice was one of them. Staying in dental school was one. I I think it just always comes down to how much you believe in yourself. Do you think that you were more willing to lean into those moments and and jump off of those cliffs because of going through what you did during childhood and, and starting from an early age? Like, like I know for me, divorce shatters your worldview, right? And you stop believing in Santa Claus and you start to really think about how am I going to get from where I am now to where I need to go if I don't have a mother or a father figure or older cousins who are showing me the way. Like, Do you think that some of that can be traced back to you at a young age going, all right, well, it's on me. If it's meant to be, it's up to me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think there were... So many moments that offered an opportunity to build self-esteem, self-efficacy, and opportunities to be challenged and to overcome a challenge. So I think I gradually built this sense of survival, confidence. I was willing to fail. I think that was the other thing. I was willing to mess up. And so 
Yeah, I think there was a an enormous cumulative effect of very challenging situations when I was a kid. You know, I, I, and I, that's one thing I worry about with my kids, and we, we talk openly about that too, about there's nothing wrong with struggle. There's nothing wrong with having to grind a little bit and having to really kind of hit rock bottom occasionally. I think those are moments when you're, you really are clear and you really see what you're made of. And I worry about that a little bit with my kids because they, you know, they've lived a pretty comfortable life. I mean, other than this, you know, the divorce, of course. But, you know, our households are peaceful and they've never really had to want for much. Mm -hmm. If they've struggled, it's been with normal developmental, emotional things. And But I'm thankful. I'm thankful that uh, it got a little crazy. I think it also affects the way I see the world and just that there's a lot of gray out there and there's no... What is right and wrong to one person might be different to somebody else. And I think it's fostered tolerance in myself. And, but yeah, definitely a willingness to take a jump, to make a big jump. Yeah. <laughs> you touched on rock bottom. One of my rock bottom moments is landing in your chair <laughs> after uh, Derby 17. Um, what, a, what, a, what a crazy traumatic experience. But, can you tell me about a time where you had hit rock bottom and just what you learned from? I almost feel like we could subtitle some of this, like Forged by the Fire. Oh, like, I love it. That yeah. would be such a good t- subtitle for, yeah, you, for you in this episode. But, but take me yeah. to one of those times where you were faced with that line in the sand moment that you look back on now and you're just so glad that you persisted or that you know whatever you were going through, you found it within yourself to overcome. Oh, my gosh. Well, a few things come to mind. But, I mean, certainly the divorce was very, uh, it was really, really difficult. I think because I felt like I was in a fairly public position in my community. I felt like people were coming in and they knew more about the situation than I even did, you know, like there, there was, and and I just, I felt like I really had to dig deep and be very clear with myself on my values and believe in who I am and the decisions I made. And so that I could have some pretty thick skin and get through that period, knowing that my business wasn't going to be destroyed, that my social life wasn't going to be destroyed. It's just a scary time, I think, for anybody that goes through that. So that was difficult. But I tried to just sort of hold my head up high and just, and again, be a good person, do the right thing and and let the chips fall. And so it all worked out for the best, I think, you know. How do you build Um, that belief in yourself when, did did you have any books that mm -hmm. were significant to you, any mantras that because believing in yourself, it's almost like an innate ability. Like you either have some base level confidence in yourself or you don't. But then you can also nurture that into becoming like this forged by the fire badass yeah. that sits in front of me right now. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> did you have any of those things or what yeah. was getting you through those days when you were like, man, this is this was a tough day. This was a tough week or a month or a year. Like what helps you move past all that? Hmm. There was a lot of solitude and just listening. You know, I think we are constantly surrounded by other voices. 
And when you spend time in solitude, you start to hear yourself a lot more. Mm -hmm. And it's an opportunity to really connect with, you know, your essence, really. And so I did that. And that helped. The book I brought you tonight, honestly, was given to me when I was kind of in the middle of this period. And it changed my life. So that and then The Four Agreements by Miguel Ruiz, that would be another one. Those two books probably made a big difference for me in just how I quit making assumptions about what people are thinking and feeling and not taking things personally, things like that. You know, those are the four agreements. But but um, I would say just a lot of time in solitude and peeling back the layers. I think, you know, the roles that we start to play as adults, if you're not super conscious and present and intentional, all of a sudden you look up you don't even really know yourself anymore, you know, and I think I'd kind of gotten to that place and so busy trying to be perfect at everything. <laughs> so during that period and and throughout all that solitude, you know, you start to, the layers start to come off, you know, and, and you start to, your true essence really starts to be revealed again and you kind of get in touch with that and enjoy it, you know, so that was, that was, I guess, kind of how I dealt with it. And, you know, then a lot of the emotional intensity starts to diminish, you know, surrounding the event itself. And then I really started to carve out sort of the life that I had really envisioned for myself. It's incredible because I think there's so few people who are actually willing to do that self-work and isolate Mm -hmm. because it's so necessary, but it's so tough to sit there with yourself and just see what comes up. You got to have some tough skin. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like so few people do that, but it's such a credit to why this has all worked. And 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 w- just one of the reasons why it's all worked for you is because I think you were willing to sit there in silence and see what came up. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think I'm I'm fairly introverted anyway. I refuel by being by myself for a little while and probably because I am with people all day and it's just a lot of it's a lot of engagement it's a lot of emotional and intellectual engagement with lots of people through the day and I like it but then I just need time to recharge by being quiet for a while so for me it was great (laughs) you know (laughs) I enjoy that that peaceful time but I know for a lot of people, it's lonely and it's uncomfortable to be alone. Yeah. But I agree. I think if you can stay with it long enough, you'll develop an appreciation for it and realize that it's almost a necessary part of staying present, you know, in today's world. So you probably like the Stoics then, don't you? I, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, that's probably, we've bonded over the Tim Ferriss podcast before. I know he's yeah. huge into Stoicism and Definitely. Seneca. and Yeah. 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 Is he the only podcast that you listen to? No, I listen to 10% Happier, which is like a meditation podcast. And then I like Mark Hyman. He's like functional doctor, functional medicine doctor. And I'm kind of, you know, I'm into like healthy stuff. So, <laughs> so I like that. Like Tony Robbins has some really great podcasts. And um, there's another one called This is Success. And that, you know, where they interview CEOs and things. And hmm. But probably the Tim Ferriss and 10% Happier are the two that I go to the most. Is this your first time ever on a podcast? Yes. This oh, is crazy. <laughs> let's go. Awesome. Oh, well, gosh. good. Let's come back to 
business. Let's let's hammer a couple of these like really businessy type questions. How do you build a business, and what are some of the most important things that you think about in terms of building a team out and building a business? Hmm. Gosh, <laughs> that's a big question. I think you need to be clear about your purpose. You know what you're trying to do. Just a kind of a clear mission, and be laser focused on it. For me, surrounding myself with good people has been the biggest factor for success. But I'm very passionate about what I do. And so uh, there's a great Steve Jobs quote about that, but something about how like, you know, when you're when you're really passionate about something, you don't have to find the motivation, you know, the vision calls you every single day. Mm -hmm. So I think do what you love and the rest kind of works itself out. You know, I mean, that sounds so kind of abstract, but really and truly, I think if your if your purpose is is solely financial or your purpose is solely power or any of that, there's always something missing. But if you truly feel like it's your dharma, you know, like it's really your calling, then I feel like everything else sort of comes along with it. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that's not a real businessy answer, but I'm not somebody that sits and crunches numbers. I'm just not. I think most of the decisions that I've made and I still make every single day are just intuitive, purely intuitive. I just I just feel like this is what we need to do or I feel like I want to try that. So that's probably not the best way to run a business. That's probably terrible advice. No. But um but for me it has worked and I think it's because I am kind of in touch with it's not about, again, trying to be the most financially successful or anything. It's about creating an experience for myself, for my patients, and for my employees that's special. I want to enjoy my work. I want it to be exciting and fun and creative. And so that I'm driven by creating just good experiences, you know? Yeah. Is that, I don't know if that answers. No, that. absolutely. That's a terrible. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, I, won't I think. not be teaching any business courses. Well, I mean, look, you're more of the artist, right? So like mm -hmm. maybe some of those, that's why you hire the person that like loves spreadsheets. Like that's their bread and butter. Yeah, that's exactly. their calling. Yeah. And then all the other things. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if you were too tied, it'd be like anybody just trying to operate their life from a textbook or a piece of paper, you know? Yeah. If you don't, if you're not listening to what comes up, right? If you're not taking time to listen to what your clients are telling you, your patients are telling you, what your people that you've employed are telling you, and, and just kind of picking up on things intuitively too, then you're, you're trying to do somebody else's version of your thing. Exactly. And that'll never work, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm fiscally irresponsible, but there are definitely times when we'll invest in some technology just because we want to play with it, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> just because we want to, you know, print little tiny women. That, you know, <laughs> oh, gosh. But, you know, again, like, it's just, it's more about, it's not about, well, does this make sense? You know, like, uh, is this going to make the spreadsheet look better this month. I don't know. I don't care. I just want to do it because I'm here for the experience, right. you know? So I think there's maybe, I think some of that little magic dust is important. You know, it, it, I think if it's all black and white and it's all about your balance sheet, you lose some of the finesse of creating something special. Mm. Wow. 
Okay, ser- back to the, a, a serious question, serious question. Do you think you're a workaholic? I do work a lot, but I not because I don't have other interests or because I have some sort of a obsessive compulsive disorder or something. I work a lot because I want to do a really good job, you know, and have a lot of people to serve. So I don't ever want to feel like I have so much volume that I'm not giving 110% to every single thing. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's just about feeling like I'm doing my best work. And so that requires a lot of my time. But also, I enjoy my work. You know, I did, like I said, I don't mind going in Sunday afternoon and carving out a tooth. You know, I like that. Or, you know, most of my weekend and night work is getting all of the information about somebody in front of me and then trying to determine how am I going to fix this problem? And here are three different ways to do it. And here's how we have to sequence it out. And here are all the parts and pieces we would need for each option. And it's just, it's a lot. I do fairly complex stuff. So it's just, it's a lot of, uh, like I said, it's a lot of studying. It's a lot of uh, intellectual just grinding to, to put it on paper. And, but that also allows me to I get the ducks lined up before I ever touch somebody. Like I know I've, I've thought through the entire sequence of how we're going to approach the case and clinically what I'm going to do. And so it helps me prepare for it, helps my team prepare for it, and it helps me get a good outcome. How do you prepare for a case when the client has face planted onto <laughs> steps and has to put a cadaver oh up in their God. gum? Oh my gosh. Had you ever done anything like that before? Uh, Oh, I do it all the time. Really? Yeah. Okay. I will say not so much with trauma. Thank goodness. Yeah. You know, but no, I mean, a couple weeks ago, I think on a Friday, I took out like six teeth. I did two sinus grafts, placed six implants. I mean, that's just the kind I did a bunch (laughs) of bone grafting, you know. That's the kind of stuff that we do. And you can't just show up for work and decide you're going to sit down and do that, you know. Right. You know, we... For a surgery like that, or even for a single implant, we sit down and review the surgery step by step before the patient ever gets there to make sure that we have every single thing that we need, everyone knows their role. I create bullet points for the staff so they just follow the instructions. It's a cookbook. (laughs) (laughs) It's like I'm talking to the Tom Brady of dentistry right now. Is that what he does? Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. Just, Just him and his trainers, and they just, they go through... And game plan for anything that could possibly go wrong so that once they're in that situation, that game, and if something happens, they've probably seen it or or know how to address it. And if they don't, well, then that's where that belief in the self comes through that you'll probably be able to figure it out. Yeah. And the longer that I've practiced, the more I know I can handle just about anything. And that's one reason we go through it like that. You know, we make sure, well, what if this drill isn't going to fit or what if this temporary doesn't work? You know, we always have backups to the backups to the backups, but that comes with experience and you have to fail a few times to figure out, we better think about if this doesn't work, you know, what we're going to do. But it's also the fun part. I think of it. It's sort of like um, getting ready to go in to play a game. You're right. You know, strategizing. Right. Yeah. That's so we, there's a lot of preparation. And again, that's nights and weekends. A lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, unplug how do you balance work and Mm. the life that you live outside of work a lot of exercise I guess but even that there's an intensity to that and that's that voluntary discomfort thing you Mm -hmm. know I like 
extremes. I like to work hard at the office, but I love to work hard in the gym too. You know, mm-hmm. I like I like that. But if I really want to relax, I mean, probably like cooking and having a great bottle of wine and <laughs> just being at home. You know, I like quiet time. I have a kayak. I like to do a little kayaking and I like to be outside, love to travel. That's probably how I disconnect the most is traveling. Yeah. You know, I'm just out of my environment. If I'm at home, I'm probably doing laundry, you know, while I'm cooking and I'm still doing, I'm still somewhat in task mode, I guess. But traveling internationally, especially just, it gives me a whole new appreciation, not only for the way other people live, but for how I'm living, you know, so. Do you solo travel? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I've yeah, been to same. India twice by myself. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I think solo travel is yeah. the thing. I think everybody should try it at least once yeah. because I think when you get outside of your comfort zone and it, it's a good way to measure who you are versus who you think you are because mm-hmm. why? what reason would a stranger have to lie to you? If somebody isn't going to connect with you in you know in another country or in another state or somewhere where you just don't know anybody they're probably not going to mince words about it or waste much time they're probably either going to get up and leave and not talk to you or you know maybe they'll be a little bit more rude about it but you can always figure out how am I being perceived like how am I actually coming off and does this align with how I see myself Mm -hmm. and getting out there and meeting people and I I, I think that's the biggest positive for, for solo travel for me is just, and it always feels good because a lot of times, like when I step out into those waters, it's like a confirmation of like, oh yeah, like I am a good person. Like yeah. people do respond to me, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're not surrounded by all the history of where you've lived for years and years or the relationships that you've had, you know, in the area. And yeah, I mean, I agree. You sort of um, see yourself in a very objective light that way. And I mean, for me, it's kind of about like not having to worry about if someone else is enjoying what I'm enjoying or are they comfortable. I mean, that sounds so selfish, but it allows me to sort of lose myself in the experience a little bit more if I'm solo so that it's not about making sure that we're both having a good time and that we're both comfortable and we're both happy and it's I can just sort of be and just really be immersed yeah. spiritually in, in what I'm doing. How much of I think it I think it's a really cool parallel between artistry and dentistry because like you've touched on it earlier in this episode, there are so many overlaps, the texture mm. and, and and all the other things that you yeah. mentioned at the top. But just I don't know how many artists go into dentistry, but I think it speaks to the attention to detail that your patients and speaking as one of your patients, I can attest to that, that I feel is being given to my dental care, but also just the aesthetic. I mean, just the, Mm -hmm. the amount of time that you're looking at these things and who knew that artistry could be dentistry and dentistry could be artistry, but like you have created that. Oh, it's, there's an enormous amount of art in dentistry. You'd be surprised. A lot of dentists are very crafty, very artsy people. A lot of them paint. A lot of them make jewelry, things like that. I think something I'm somewhat struggling with right now is that we, you know, so many of our processes have become digital now, which is great. But my generation is very analog. Mm -hmm. So 
I love it that I've got these young women in my office that really drive that part of the practice. They are very innovative and they're really good with just understanding the software and the technology. So I, I like old school. I like to sit down and carve. Whereas, you know, they are now designing digitally instead of, so they're cutting, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and shaping and carving digitally. I like those things in my hands and I like to be able to feel it. You know, I still use a paper calendar. You know, I don't, <laughs> I don't use my phone. I like to use a real book. I don't want to read something on my phone. But yeah, there's an enormous amount of, I think it's, it's art imitating life. I think in order to, to make a tooth look like a real tooth, that there's an enormous amount of art in that. Just like if you're trying to paint a vase of flowers on a two-dimensional canvas, yeah. trying to imitate that perfectly, it takes a lot of skill. So, so for example, you had your experience with your front teeth. And so if I have to do one front tooth on someone, I want to make it look exactly like the other front tooth if I can, you know, Mm -hmm. and to do that by hand is just, it's really difficult. You know, there's so many nuances to the, the translucency and the shading, the highlights, the, you know, all of it. So yeah, I mean, it's absolutely art. The ceramists at the laboratory that stack porcelain, they build porcelain, you know, crowns, veneers and things like that. They're usually high, they should be highly, highly trained skilled technicians. I mean, talk about people that are passionate about their work and Mm. super, super creative and artsy. Those guys are unbelievable. I mean, they're building that stuff by hand and it's really a fusion of art and science for them as well. But yeah, there's there's a lot of art in dentistry. What about, can we talk about, I don't know what the makeup is between like male and female dentists. Mm. Is it a mostly male dominated field? Yes, definitely. So let's talk about your journey and your experience as a woman owning your practice and and kind of, I don't know if it would be appropriate to say breaking through that glass ceiling because sure, that's, that's yeah. like a dated thing. But Well, you know, I've seen it change significantly since I've been in practice. I do a lot of continuing education. I go to courses all the time and do various things, go to meetings and things. And early in my practice, it was not uncommon for me to be the only woman in the room of 50 men, you know, Mm -hmm. or I might be one of two or three in a room of a hundred people. It's definitely better now, but it's still very male dominated, especially when it comes to surgical training. And it's not that they're not capable. I think some of that has to do with just lifestyle and kind of, and what kind of liability do you want every day in your work? You know, what kind of pressure, what kind of risks are you comfortable with? And again, the kind of training that I do and the kind of dentistry that I do, it's not for everybody because it does take those nights and weekends to do it well, to do it right. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it just comes down to a lifestyle choice. I don't think it's that dentistry doesn't welcome women. It definitely does. And And there's definitely... There are opportunities to work part-time, which a lot of women, female dentists do. They work maybe two or three days a week. And it's a good, it's a good profession to do that in, you know. Mm-hmm. But practice ownership is a whole different job. You can be a dentist full-time and never own a practice. Entrepreneurship is in itself a job. I think it's just, you know, you kind of figure out who you are and what your disposition is and 
what you're good at, what you enjoy. And for some people, it's just too much. You know, it's just not their choice. I like voluntary discomfort. (laughs) (laughs) What are some of the other voluntary discomfort things that you incorporate in your life? I don't know. I mean, I'm... You're a 5 a.m. club person? Oh, I'm I'm up at 4.30 every day. But, I mean, I definitely think taking on some of the work that I do is me being willing to really work hard and 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 take on some of that liability some of that risk and i think in some of the the traveling like we were talking about kind of getting out of your comfort zone and being willing to yeah. sure i'll go <laughs> do this by myself and <laughs> why not you know i mean because it, it again like when i was talking about those experiences as a child kind of you know, gradually, cumulatively building this sort of self-empowerment, this self-efficacy, this self-confidence and esteem. Um, I think I'm still doing that. You know, I think that's a lifetime of um, being willing to try things. And then when you are successful, it just continues to build your capacity and confidence for doing more. Yeah. What are some of the things about entrepreneurship that interest you the most, that you're most passionate about? And what was the influence that made you even start to think about entrepreneurship and and get involved as, as an entrepreneur? I guess in wanting to own the business, to to own my own practice, it was really about, again, I wanted to be in control of that experience for everybody, for myself, for the patients and for the team. So um, that was really what drove it is just, you know, it sort of takes on a life of its own after a while. I love the creative side of, you know, creating a brand. And I guess I wanted to be able to make decisions. You know, I didn't want. Okay, so in creating the experience for myself, I didn't want to work for another doctor or a corporate practice where I was kind of being told how to do the dentistry or or what kind of artwork to hang in the reception area or, you know, like that kind of stuff drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. Again, I needed that consistency between the work I was doing on that patient and the environment. So for me, deciding to start the practice wasn't so much about like, I want to own a business someday. It was more about like, I want to be in control of this experience that I'm going to be creating for people. And so this is how I'm going to have to do it if that's what I want to do. What do you think makes a good entrepreneur? What are some of the key traits that you think every entrepreneur should have? Uh, Definitely being able to tolerate highs and lows, extremes. If you are somebody that likes things to be calm and pretty sedate all the time, pretty predictable, it's not for you. I think, and again, going back to those childhood experiences and kind of developing this sort of survival skill being realizing that you can manage those highs and lows and that you almost sort of thrive on them, then that's, I I think, otherwise it is incredibly stressful. And it took me a few years to even understand how to manage the emotional side of that. I mean, also, it sure helps when now the business is very stable and I'm not worried about how I'm going to make payroll next week. (laughs) You know, that that helps a lot because it gives you the freedom to sort of sit back and see the business from a different perspective. I think also, yeah, if you're looking for a nine to five, it's again, it's now I I know there are some businesses where after you establish the business, you know, you might go into the office for two or three hours and then your people kind of do the rest of it for you. 
But I think for the most part, if you're really driven and passionate about what you're doing, it's your child. Uh, you want to be in there. You know, it's yeah. not nine to five. It's twenty four seven. It's always on your mind, and it's yeah. it becomes a big part of your identity. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that's one of the main things that just anybody who launches a business, even if it fails, but anybody that has the courage to do that, it's so easy for your identity to get wrapped up in those two things and see yourself as one and the same, your business and 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 your identity, and it's 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 just cool. It's it's just really cool. I I just think it's really cool what you've built, and uh, I think any person listening, any woman listening, any person who is starting down a path and maybe thinking, I don't know if this is for me and making that life pivot. Like, I just think that this interview right here is, is exactly what they need to hear. Because again, it's like, look, look how it worked out for this person. You know, look how it worked out for Dr. Sarah Cummins. Yeah. What a powerful statement to be able to say, Dr. Sarah Cummins. Like, it's just, I don't know. I, I just, this is one of my favorite episodes that we, I've ever done. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah. That's awfully generous of you to say that. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think, I guess you can allow the business to define you, or but I, I feel like the business is defined by who I am, if anything. I think it's a real true reflection of, my commitment to it and my aesthetic sense and, like I said, my attention to detail. So for me, it feels I'm at peace with it because there's a, um, you know, it aligns. The, it's it's a manifestation of who I am, yeah. I guess, yeah. you know, as, as opposed to me feeling like it's controlling me. What's next? I mean, because most no. people, they, they build a successful practice and then eventually they start to phase out at some yeah. point. But you're like, no, we're, we're, we're going, you know, 24-7. So, like, what does that next level look like for you? Yeah, I definitely think about it more now than, than I used to. I mean, there are some things that I want to see through. There's some things I want to accomplish in the practice. Um, but I, I definitely, you know, it's a very physical job. You'd be surprised. And so I, I know there are people that do it till they're 75. There's no way, no way. And, and I also, I just have a lot of other interests that I'd like to explore, you know, in, in life before I'm too old to really do something with it. So I don't know, I might end up teaching at some point. I like to do that. I, I teach a couple of classes at Sullivan in their physician's assistant program, and I enjoy that. But, you know... Again, I want to be done before I'm too old to try something else. <laughs> so I'm going to finish up a few projects here in the next few years. And then, I don't know, I would love to go be a sous chef somewhere. <laughs> really? In a little restaurant and, yeah, chop vegetables all afternoon. I don't know. I like retail a lot. I did some of that in college, and I wouldn't mind having a little something retail. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm I'm kind of exploring all that right now in my head and just daydreaming about it, you know? Maybe a studio. Maybe, maybe. with the financial freedom that yeah. you created for yourself, now you can maybe open up a little... Mom always talks about that. She's like, listen, if I ever fall off the face of the earth and I just like, no one ever hears from me again, I'll be in Monterey like with a little art studio, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. I have started to kind of delve back into that, thinking it is something that I want to 
do more of so near retirement, but or even just owning a little gallery where I can show local artists or something like yeah. that. So we'll see. Okay, two more questions. Yeah. Do you have a favorite travel story, your best travel story? I mean, probably a travel experience that most impacted me both spiritually, you know, just intellectually, was in India. I was on a little boat in the Ganges River, Ganga is what they say, but, you know, you may have heard of a place called Varanasi. It's kind of a spiritual center for Indian, for Hindus. You may have heard this, that they cremate the bodies along the the shore of the Ganges River, and there, I mean, just huge fires, and there are families that are sort of going through this ritual and there are cows walking around everywhere and it's um it's a fascinating experience but that's something that really has stuck with me is my experience in Varanasi and um so they they burn these bodies but then the ashes flow into the river and you know their idea is that in this river and that they will bathe in it in the morning even though it's horribly polluted (laughs) it's awful but they feel like that they do it first thing in the morning and they feel like that sort of washes away any sins and cleanses them and prepares them for the day ahead you know so so that they're starting spiritually fresh and renewed and and so that's the whole idea of you know the cremation basically of these bodies at the shore of this river and um, but it's a really as as again morbid as it, it might seem it's a beautiful thing to witness the way that they transition from life to death in that in that country so awesome and then lastly give me your realist talk what is the one thing that you want everybody listening to walk away and really think about or what is something that you think everybody should know about life or people or business or anything big believer in just living with intention just being thoughtful in your decisions and and witnessing, observing your decisions and in order to create the life that you want. And I believe that, you know, good thoughts, good words, good deeds, everything needs to align. So your your thoughts, your words, and your actions should all align, yeah. you know. And hopefully your thoughts and your actions are intentional for carving out the life experience that you want. So I guess that seems kind of generic, I guess, but that's the first thing that came to mind. So <laughs> I Boom. talked to him. Yeah. Dr. Sarah Cummins, oh. thank you so much oh, for coming. Thank and you, Ben. Thank, thank you for you. doing all that you do. It's been a fun experience. I love yeah. this little room. <laughs> yeah. What do you think of this? Play, this it's studio? awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's really, it's really great. You like the Snoopies? I do. So what's with the Snoopy thing? What you're just a, just OCD about certain things. Snoopy is one of them. Yeah. They're just uh, m- my grandparents, they always really loved. We would spend the night over there, get Dunkin' Donuts, and read Snoopy with my grandpa in the morning. So oh. that's where it comes from. Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a powerful image for you. Then I yeah. mean, it resonates with a lot of memory and yeah. good feelings. Yeah. So well, good luck to you in this new venture. Thank you so much. Thank you. I know. I'm I'm like, uh, what am I going to do? Schedule a six month 
I'll come home. Yes. I'll see family. I'll <laughs> see you at the dentist's office because I don't want to have to. You know, when I was going back and forth from California and Kentucky and seeing somebody out there, it was, was crazy. It was, it was the worst experience possible. Yeah, it was awful. And I was like, uh, I just want what I'm used to, which is you. I mean, you know what? No. You've spoiled us all over oh, here in Prospect. Gosh. So, well, you're kind. Again, it's been such a privilege, and I never take that for granted. You know, when somebody, especially again in dentistry, where people are just just so much fear, it's just. I really appreciate your trust and your confidence in me. Always. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I certainly did. That was one of my all-time favorites right there. I know I'm not supposed to say that because it's hard to say that one is more favored than the other. You know, it's like trying to pick your favorite kid. And that's how I feel when I do these episodes. But dude, I swear that is one of my favorite episodes that I've ever done. I am so thankful that Sarah came on and was just as vulnerable and as raw with me as she was. And I think those are the types of interviews that when I sat down and started to think, this is what I want to do with my life. These are the type of episodes that I had in mind. And this one is just an all-timer, man. So I am just, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, seriously. I love you. That was amazing. This episode is amazing. And I hope that uh, everybody else enjoyed it. If you did, please let us know by leaving a quick rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Share this with somebody, please. If you have been inspired or encouraged or if something that Sarah shared in this episode resonated with you, it hit deep with you, then please pass this along and share this with somebody else that you might think would resonate with them or or hit deep with them. And uh, that's really going to help me grow the show as well as let Sarah's journey be heard by so many more people and it's just a great journey I learned so much about her you know I've known this one for 10 plus years and still I'm learning all of these things as we go deep and deeper and deeper and it's just I (laughs) what else can I say what else can I say man so I hope you guys, if you enjoyed this episode and you're a brand new listener, this was the first time that you've ever joined the show. Good to have you. I hope that you'll come back next week. We've got Jamie Ledden, a fantastic speaker. She's a corporate coach. She is a consultant. She runs a business with her husband. It's a top firm, and I cannot wait for that episode to drop either. We've got some really powerful women coming up on the show, man, and it's really great. It's a really beautiful thing. So please come back next week. And please remember to drop that rating and a review. It's really important. I'm really trying to blow these numbers up, baby. So help a brother out. All right. That's it for me. That's all I got. I am Ben Tompkins. That is Real Talk.